The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. It's good to see you this morning. Glad you guys are here. Hopefully you brought your Bibles with you. You can go to 1 Samuel 16. That's where we will be spending our time this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 16 has been mentioned. Hope you had a blessed week this week. Enjoyed the summer weather we had. It was enjoyable. 1 Samuel 16, like I said, is where we'll be looking. We have to understand as we approach Scripture, and especially this morning, that the book that we have, the Bible that we have been given, is a book that, yes, has been written by men, but has been inspired by the Holy Spirit through them and to write this. It's made up of different books. If you go through your Bible, you'll see uh, that it's made of different books. But all those books work together to tell us the story that God has for us, tells us his plan. It was all planned out by God. And so we can't take any of scripture and dismiss it. One of the ways that it gets dismissed, honestly, I think people mean this well, but it actually (laughs) isn't that good, is they'll take the red letter words and put more emphasis on those because they'll say, these were Jesus's words. Jesus's words are the red letter words. Well, when you do that, you minimize the rest of Scripture. And God's given us all of Scripture, not just the words that we have recorded that Jesus says, but but all of it is God-breathed, Scripture tells us. And so it's very important for us to understand the whole story, to understand all of it. And so today we come to a really important passage. 1 Samuel 16 is, is very key in the history of Israel and in our history as well as Christians. And so it's important for us to understand why it is so important and everything that is there. And so in order to do that, we do need to understand a little bit of the scripture that's been given before here in 1 Samuel that we have. And so, well, I'm going to try to do that briefly the best I can so that we understand uh, how important today's passage is. When you go all the way to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, in Genesis chapter 3 is where sin, we see that sin has entered uh, mankind. It's there. Adam and Eve have sinned. God seeks after them. They're hiding. Well, then when God comes to them and God, God speaks to them, he actually says some things to Eve that says, because of your sin, this is going to happen. He looks at Adam, because of your sin, this is going to happen. He looks at the serpent, says, because of, of what you have done, this is going to happen. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it says, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is important, because this is something that God is laying out before us from the very beginning, saying, from her seed you are going to be bruised. Your head is going to be bruised. Later we see crushed, right? He said, oh, you will bruise his heel. But this is a a prophecy that is being foretold by God. This is a promise that is being made. As you continue through scripture there in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, we see of Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham. I don't want to read of it, but he says, you know, I'll bless you. You'll be a, a person of many nations from you, right? Your children will be as the sand of the seashore. We know this. This is a, a covenant that God made with Abraham and with Abraham's people from that forth on. Well, then in Genesis chapter 49, uh, we have 
some of Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We have the story of Jacob. And you know that Jacob had children, right? He had many different children. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph. Uh, This was one of Jacob's children. But at the end of Jacob's life, he's blessing his children. And he takes each of them one by one. And he, he gives them different blessings. But he gets to his son Judah and he gives him this blessing. And it's important. Again, it's important for us today. So listen, in Genesis 49, verse 8 through 12, this is what Jacob says to Judah, his son Judah, who's not the firstborn, who's not the most prominent, anything like that. But this is what he says to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now this is, maybe you read this and you say, it's a very weird blessing to give. You can go read the other ones. Uh, They can all be weird at, at times. But this one is important because he tells Judah. You notice he says, Judah, the scepter shall not depart. Your father's sons, meaning his other children, which become the tribes of Israel, will bow down to you, Judah. And so we see a prophecy being told that there is royalty within this line of Judah. There's royalty there. It's actually pretty interesting, too. If you know anything about Judah, if you know the story of Joseph, you remember his brothers sold him into slavery and all this. Well, they end up, they end up going into Egypt, and at this time, Joseph has went up the ranks in Egypt where he's second in command, and the brothers come to him. I'd encourage you to read this story in Genesis, towards the end of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 44, Joseph is dealing with his brothers. They don't know it's him yet at this point. He finds out he has a a little brother and they bring the little brother to him. And Joseph says, you need to leave your little brother behind and go back to your father. And it's interesting because Judah steps forward and Judah says, I will take my brother's place. Take my life. I will be your servant for the rest of my life. My father could not bear losing another son. Let, Let him go back. I will take his place. It was Judah who did that. It was Judah who stepped forward. A little foreshadowing there. Well, as we continue in the history of Israel, we get to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, I've already talked about this in this series, so I don't want to stay here long. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God actually already has established the way of Israel's king. God has already declared that there is going to be a king. And he says how the king should live and what the king should do. I want to read it because I don't, I don't think I've read it yet. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 to 20 says this, says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. It's weird. It's like God knew it was going to happen. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away 
nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So again, we see God already establishing that there will be a king in Israel. Well, as you continue on after Moses and after Joshua, we get to judges and we see that then Israel is ruled by judges and there's different judges and you can go back to the book of Judges if you want and look at those. But in particular, it's very interesting that in Judges chapter one, verse one through two, this is what it says. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? What does the Lord say? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hands. Why Judah? Why Judah? Of all of the, of all of the tribes, of all of Jacob's family, why Judah? Again, he wasn't that important. He wasn't first. He wasn't Joseph, right? You would think it would be maybe one of these, but no, they call on Judah. Again, because maybe this is the promise that God had established all the way in Genesis. As we continue to learn about the tribe of Judah, you'll see that Judah goes into these battles, takes their land, and within this land, we find the city of Bethlehem. Now, when it talks about the land that Judah has, if you go and look, it doesn't mention Bethlehem, but in the book of Ruth, which we've studied together, we learn that Ruth is of the land of, of Judah, or that Bethlehem comes to the land of Judah. That they, are, that they have this. And at the very end of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, when talking about Ruth, when talking about Boaz, and that they form this family and they have a child, we learn at the end of Ruth there, in chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, that this is the line of David, of somebody named David. And so if you're just reading scripture again from the front to the back and you go through Ruth, you have to wonder at the end, Okay, Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. The end. What's the point? Well, there is a point. And that's what we're getting at when we go today and look at today. Because over the last couple of weeks, we have seen that the people of Israel did what God said they were going to do. They asked for a king. He gave them a king, the king that they would want. We see that Saul has chosen this king, right? King after man's own heart. But last week, we saw that this king was not a faithful king. We saw that this king fell. And so there's a problem now in the land of Israel. When we ended last week, it was a pitiful state. It was a pitiful sight. The word of God, it says Samuel left Saul for good until Saul would die. So we were left really at a bad point, which makes us pick up where we're at in chapter 16, verse 1. It really makes sense. Look at the beginning of verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Let's stop there just for a moment. If we remember again what we talked about last week, the pitiful state that Israel finds themselves in, the pitiful state that the king is in and Saul and what Samuel had to do, Samuel had to kill King Agag, all these different things. It's 
pretty understandable that we find Samuel mourning. We find Samuel feeling rejected. We find Samuel wondering, what's going to happen to Saul? No doubt he cared for him. What's going to happen to Israel? Because from Samuel's point of view, as he had judged Israel for so long, and now he helped them get this king, it looks like all's lost. It really looks troubling. Yet when God comes to him, God doesn't really show him much mercy. He looks at this person who is mourning, and he asks him, how long are you going to keep mourning? How long are you going to keep in this state, Samuel? It's really a tough question because we see in places in Scripture, I read this passage pretty much every funeral that I do in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says that there is a, a time to mourn, there is a time to dance. And so we see that there is a time for mourning. But one of the things that we have to understand in our life that that is not all the time. Maybe you have known of people, or maybe even you yourself have gotten to a point where you have been stuck in mourning for a very long time, maybe from a very serious thing. But, we, but we're not able to get past it. You know, and, and what God is doing here with, with uh, Samuel is he's saying, Samuel, you have to get past this. I have, I have more work for you. There's more things that need to be done. How long are you going to sit here and mourn for Israel as if there's no hope? And that's the point. Sometimes we sit in our own little mornings at time, right? Again, this isn't the point of this passage. I'm just trying to point it out. We sit in our own little times of mourning as if there is no hope. And as Christians, we have hope. As Christians, we have been given hope. And so no matter the circumstances of this life and the difficult things that we face, we are not allowed to be stuck in times of mourning forever. That's where it's important for us as a church body to come around our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are grieving and who are mourning. Very legitimate situations, very difficult circumstances. But it's our job as their church family to come around them and love them well to help them get out of those times of mourning. It doesn't mean that they're not going to feel any more pain from whatever they've experienced or anything like that. No, that stuff is real and needs to be dealt with. But we do not live in a state of hopelessness. And that's what it seems like Samuel is doing here, as if he's living without, without hope. But God didn't end there with just this question, because look what he says in the second part of verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. This is amazing because this shows, this shows us the work that God does and that he will continue to do. Until the end of time, you have, you have the prophet of God, Samuel, mourning because it seems as if all hope is lost and God reminds him, listen, I've already got another king in place. Fill your little thing there with oil and get going. Get over to his house. You're sitting here mourning as if, what are we going to do? That's not the right question, Samuel. The right question is, God, what are you doing now? And I am doing something. I am providing a king. And it's interesting, the wording that we get here in this passage, is it not? He doesn't say, I'm providing a king for my people. What does he say? Providing for myself a king. This is God's king. This is not man's king. This is God's king. Remember, Saul was man's king, a man like the nations. And God is saying, no, I have chosen a king for myself. 
So we have a picture here of God once again saving Israel despite their failures. And this is a characteristic that we've seen of God all throughout these different passages that we've been journeying through together. The characteristics of grace and protection that God continues to provide for them again and again and again. When everything in the world seems lost, God shows himself to be true over and over and over and over again. Yes, the word of God had left King Saul. But what we see here is we see God saying, but don't worry. That doesn't mean I'm done. I'm done with Saul. But that doesn't mean that I'm done here. It really harkens back to chapter 12 and verse 22 of what we looked at when Samuel was talking. And Samuel would say, God does not forsake his people. Only a few chapters later, they've already forgotten this. Samuel himself, who said these words, is acting as if he has forgotten this. God, we are forsaken. We're at a loss. What do we do? And God says, I do not forsake my people. Look, I have provided myself a king. And today we still have this same promise. And I think we can all attest to this. Though our kings fail us, though our enemies seem to turn in on us over and over and over again, what we know to be true is that Jesus will never, ever allow his people to be destroyed. We see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, of which I feel like I've been reading a lot lately. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a promise that too often we forget. Or too often in our flesh we don't live according to this promise. We feel as if If this doesn't happen, right? If this happens or if this doesn't happen, the world is going to fall apart. All is lost for the church. There is going to be no hope. And we forget, hope does not lie in the things that man is doing. Hope lies in the firm foundation and hands of God. And so we can't find ourselves like Samuel. We got to remember that the beginning of 1A is not where we need to leave ourselves. We have to remember that there was 1B. I have provided myself a king. So let's look at verses 2 through 13. It says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, 
there remains yet the youngest, and he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So in these verses here, we see Samuel gets to anoint the true king. The plan is set up that Samuel is going to go to Bethlehem to sacrifice, but we see that this wasn't a common occurrence because when Samuel shows up to town, it says the people are scared to death of what's going to happen, which is very understandable because there's a lot of things that could be going on there, but they might be thinking, we're kind of living in a divided kingdom right now, and if it looks like we're siding with you, maybe Saul's going to get all mad at us or... Uh, We don't really know, right? There there could be some tense situations there, which really makes sense. It's an understandable. But he he assures them, I'm not here for anything, but I'm going to perform a sacrifice here. And he goes to Jesse in particular, who must have been known. There's got to be something about him that was known. And he says, Jesse, I want you and your sons to come, and they're going to pass before me to see who the Lord has chosen. There's a lot of secrecy going on here. You don't know what all they know of what is happening and what is going on in this moment. But we see Jesse comes and he brings his oldest son who really looked the part. We've been here before. We've been in this situation before. You think Samuel would have learned. He sees Eliab and he goes, this has got to be it. It was the exact same with Saul, you remember? Saul was head and shoulders above everybody. His stature was so great. He was a good-looking guy. And these are the same traits that he sees in Jesse's oldest son. And, and Samuel in his heart is saying, this has got to be the one. Don't we do this? Don't we still do this today all the time? <clears throat> it's interesting because you get to uh, verse 17 and we have to read about how the Lord says to him, no, man looks at the outside appearance, but the Lord doesn't focus on that. The Lord is focused on the heart of a person. Yeah, I've been around long enough now that to know that even in churches, I'll pick on us because I'm a church person. I love the church. Even in churches, when we're trying to find a pastor, we oftentimes look for somebody who looks the part. And I don't know if I like that or not, that I'm hired as a pastor to think I look the part. Most pastors that I knew growing up were not in shape and they talked like they were from the South. That's what a pastor was to me. Okay, just being quite honest. So I don't necessarily want to look the part or even necessarily sound the part. But we do that, don't we? He looks, he looks pretty pastoral. That's what we're concerned about. If he's going to be the one to represent us and the community and other things, he needs to look a certain way. He needs to act a certain way. Instead of maybe asking some other key questions, is this man broken before the Lord? Does this man love God's word more than all things? Is this a person of character? Is this a person who doesn't go with the ebbs and flows of society and things, but will stay true to teach us God's word over and over again? Does this person have a heart for the people that he's going to serve? I'll be honest, I don't hear those questions too often when searching for pastors. And I think those are the questions that need to be asked. Instead, we ask, how good does he sound? Is he monotone? 
Is he going to be boring? Am I going to fall asleep listening to him? doesn't matter who it is. You're probably going to fall asleep. We all do that at times. Or maybe, or maybe you fell for this, ladies. I'll, I'll speak to you ladies. Maybe you fell for this when you were dating that guy before. Oh, he looked the part. But then you got to know him. He was dumb as a box of rocks. He wasn't funny. Right? There was nothing about him that you liked except the way he looked. And man, he, he looked good. And maybe some of you even fell into the trap so much you married that guy. And now you regret it. I mean, I'm just being honest. There's a lot of good Christian ladies that I know who are married to some scoundrels who are not Christians. And their life has been a struggle because of it. And if you ask them, what happened? Well, he looked the part. He was very nice to me, but he didn't have a changed heart. His heart was what Jeremiah described as evil and wicked and never had been changed by the gospel. And so now you're stuck in a situation in a marriage. It's very difficult because you did what Samuel continues to do. Look at the outside of the individual to decide if this is the one that you want to be with. Well, as you continue on, you see that none of the sons are selected at all. And Samuel knows beyond a shadow of a doubt there has to be more because God told him to go to Jesse, that one of his sons would be the one chosen. And God has rejected all of these. So he says there has to be another son. And it almost seems like Jesse comes across as saying, yeah, there's one more. He's out in the field. And Samuel has to get very stern with him and say, listen, we will not eat until he gets here. We're not even going to sit down until you bring him before me. Go get him. And so they go and they get, they get David and they bring David in. And I want us to notice something. I think that this gets lost oftentimes. But you got to notice the appearance of David. David is no slouch here either. Because we do think that. We see this story of God looks at the heart, not the outside. And so we start to think we can go this way. And we can look at somebody who looks good looking, who looks prim and proper. And we say, yeah, but there's got to be something dirty on the inside. David seems to, says he was handsome. He was a good looking guy. He had bright eyes. I saw some commentators try to twist this to say it meant he wasn't very manly. I don't think that's the case here because we'll, we'll see that in a few, few verses that we'll read in a moment. But this wasn't why God was choosing him. That's the important part. It was, he wasn't disqualified because he wasn't good looking or he was good looking. No, he was qualified because of his heart, as we're going to see. And so God chooses David and he tells Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. And you notice verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. This is key. This is so important because look at verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This is a sad changeover for Saul. Because it wasn't too long ago, you remember that Samuel was anointing Saul. And Saul would go and prophesy with the prophets. And people would say, look at this guy. He's, he is full of the spirit, is he not? And now we see that the spirit departs from Saul. Let's keep reading. Not only does the spirit of the Lord depart from Saul, but it says, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man 
who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing. Notice this about David too. A mighty man of valor and a man of war, prudent in speech and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So we really have this horrible scene in verse 14 of not only does the spirit of the Lord depart from Saul, but it says the Lord sends a distressing spirit to Saul. The Lord does this, a spirit that will cause Saul to be in agony at times and, and struggle. Again, some commentators want to go and say, well, this was Saul struggling with depression. anxiety." No, this is very different of what's happening here. This is the Lord sending a specific spirit to trouble Saul over and over and over again. Why? Because Saul had turned his back on God. Saul had rejected God. And now we see him to start to pay the price for this. But it's amazing how God even provides for the one who is the rejected king. God even still gives him some grace. It's so funny if you have this type of humor, how he does it. Because here we have the rejected king on the throne being provided grace and mercy by the chosen king all in his courts. If Saul had only known, maybe at this point, maybe he would have changed his mind. But Saul doesn't know that David was anointed king. And I dare say David doesn't even fully know what has happened at this point. But the way God's works and the way that God's plan unfolds, it just so happens that a man in the court knows of a son of Jesse who's really good at playing the harp, who's out in the field with the sheep, and he comes. And we see this picture of grace here that David shows Saul. The true king shows the rejected king over and over and over again. And really, he does it throughout his whole life. Saul will continually try to kill David over and over again. And David continually gives grace to Saul again and again and again. Here we have, what, do we, what we have here is a real life picture of Psalm chapter one. If you remember in Psalm chapter one, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Note that this is how it describes him. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. King David. But now it starts to describe Saul. The wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, we we have sad, pathetic King Saul withering away. Withering away because of his wickedness. Withering away because he would stand with sinners. He would sit in that seat. He would be that person. And so he's not like a tree planted by the river. No, he's, he is drying up, and that is what we are seeing. But then on the flip side, we have David, who is planted by the river, who will not sit with sinners or sit in the scoffers. And he is giving delight to this guy who's withering away. As we look at this story, what we see and we have to know and understand is that King David really is a type of Christ. Now, before I talk about that too much, I need you to understand what I mean by what is a type of Christ. David Murray, he's a, he's a pastor, I believe at Byron Center. Is that the name of the church, I think? He has something that's really helpful, and so I just want to read it as we talk about a type of Christ because we see this all in the Old Testament. I've talked about it before at different times with Boaz and different things. A type is a prophetic picture of Christ's person and work. It is a real person, place, object, event, etc., which God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Christ's person and work or of opposition to it. A type has four main characteristics. I know you feel like you're in school, but I'm sorry. It is a story, an object, a person, or an event. The story, object, etc., is true, real, and factual. The same truth is found in both the type and the anti-type, the fulfillment of the type. The same truth is enlarged, heightened, and clarified in the anti-type. And then he gives an example. The Passover lamb is a type of Christ. It was real. The truths of substitutionary sacrifice and redemption by blood are found in both the type and the anti-type, which is Christ. And these truths are enlarged, heightened, and clarified in the anti-type or in Christ. The anti-type is the God-man, not just the lamb. And he redeems from spiritual and eternal bondage, not just physical and temporary bondage. And so when we're talking about the fact that David is a type of Christ, David is real. We know this about him. right? And we see that he is actually pointing to the true king. He is pointing to the true Christ that we need. And so when we look at David's life and we even see things in this story, we first need to ask the question, how is David like Jesus? Well, his lineage is correct. He's from the tribe of Judah. That should have been a first thing for us when we saw Saul. Wait, Saul's not from Judah. That's a problem because we know the king should come from Judah. Well, now we finally have the king of Judah. He comes from the correct tribe. Well, we know the same is true of Jesus. If you look at his lineage in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah as well. So we see the prophecy being fulfilled. We also see within David a heart that is submissive. And this is really important because we talk about David being a king after God's own heart. But if we know anything about David, we know that David was a really bad sinner. In fact, I would go so far as to say his sins were worse than Saul's ever were. The sins that David commits are really, really awful. If we were to do church discipline on David, we'd vote him out. After his little escapades, after the things he had done, we would say, listen, David, 
This is not becoming of a Christian. This is not how we act. You probably don't need to be here. You probably need to be separated from us. And so we have to wonder then, why is David after God's heart, but Saul was not? Well, I think it's because we see that David has a submissive heart. That commentary that I've been encouraging you guys to get, that I've been reading, Dale Davis has a quote. He said in the footnotes, he says, this does not mean a sinless heart. We're not saying David has a sinless heart, and we know that future events will prove this, but it at least means he has a a submissive heart, which is very different than what Saul's heart was. Saul was not willing to commit and submit himself to God and to the Lord to do the things that he said, but obviously David is. Yes, he will sin, but we always find David after sin confessing his sin before God. Always. And the way that he confessed his sin was so different than Saul. Because you remember when, when Samuel would approach Saul and say, what is the bleeding sheep I hear? You are supposed to destroy everything. Do you remember what Saul would say? Yeah, these people with me. They just, they just had to bring them. But they brought them to sacrifice. There was no repentance whatsoever. But as we read earlier, when David would sin, we see this all in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This was the heart of David. Yes, he would sin. Yes, he would fall short. But yet he was always going back to the Lord seeking forgiveness, repenting of his sin, recognizing it is my sin that I am guilty of. And I'm only guilty before you and our relationship needs to be repaired, but only you can do something about it. I can't. David recognized that when Saul won it. Well, likewise with Jesus, we see Jesus himself submit to the father with his whole life. He would be obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, death on the cross, Scripture tells us. So we see David pointing us to this one. Because while David wasn't perfect, we know that Jesus was perfect. We see that David is a good king, and we will see this in the weeks that come up. David leads the kingdom well. He unites all the tribes together. He loves them. He leads them in battle. He goes forward. He fulfills the law of the king that we see in Deuteronomy that we read. He does all of these things. And we know from scripture that likewise in Jesus, we have the perfect king in him. You see, the problem with David is David died. I can't look to him as my king anymore. He's long gone. But what we have in Christ is we have a king that lives forever. He never dies. Oh, we, we tried to kill him. And it worked for a few days. But he rose from the grave. And the Bible tells us in that, he conquered the enemy that David could never conquer. David could conquer the Philistines. David could conquer all these nations that were around him and fight in these battles and, and bring some peace to the land. But it's really interesting. When David dies, it doesn't take long for all that to get squandered. All that goes away. And what we find out is this. David, you didn't actually destroy our enemy. 
But with Jesus, the Bible tells us, remember, remember we talked about in Genesis? He will crush your head. That's what Jesus did on the cross and in rising from the dead. Crush the head of the serpent. No more. No more enemy for us as believers in him because it has been destroyed and we have a king that still reigns who sits at the right hand of God the Father to this moment. He is the king that we have read about in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4 through 7. I want to read it again. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, when this psalm was written, it was speaking of David, but it was pointing us to Christ. I have begotten you, the only begotten son, Jesus Christ, of who our hopes and peace rest on. So not only is he a good king, but David is the chosen king. David was handpicked by God before he even knew it. David had no idea what was going on, but we have the same thing with Christ. He is our chosen king. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Before the foundations of the world, we've been talking about that a lot in our house. Uh, my, my youngest son has these questions like, Dad, if there's no darkness and there's no light, what does it look like? If God hadn't created those things yet, is it like air? And I'm like, there wasn't air yet. Wait, what? Like just blowing his mind, you know? He's trying to think through these things. Back then, during that time, Jesus was chosen. He was chosen to be your king. He was chosen to be my king. And nothing can shake that. Nothing can separate that. Then lastly, and what I think really is key for us in this passage, on David, the spirit of the Lord rested. Verse 13, we see the spirit of the Lord dwells in David. And it says from this day forward. The things that David goes on to accomplish, we have to understand is only begun because the spirit of the Lord dwelt in him. At one point, the Spirit of the Lord dwelt in Saul, and he did some good things. But when the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, it all starts to fall apart. And so we have to recognize, as we continue to look at the life of David in the coming weeks, it's because the Spirit of the Lord rested on him. And when we think about that, it needs to point us forward to the baptism of Christ. Because when Jesus was baptized, you've got to remember, Jesus was 30 years old at this point. He was just a guy. His dad, carpenter. He was just another person. All these people are out there with John the Baptist and they're going into this yucky water and they're going under and then they're coming up and he's yelling for everybody to repent. You know, John the Baptist, you've got to repent of your sins and you're a viper and you are this, right? He's going off on everybody. And then this ordinary guy walks up, Jesus. And all of a sudden everything changes. John understands, I should not be baptizing you. But Jesus tells him, you have to. It's been chosen before the foundation of the world that this is going to happen. Listen, John, you are going to baptize me. And when, Je when Jesus goes under the water and he gets baptized, he comes up and it says, the spirit comes down from heaven like a dove, it says. And all of a sudden a voice is heard. 
This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Just like with David. Samuel, this is the one. This is my chosen one. Anoint him. What we see in Jesus' baptism is God the Father saying to us, this is my begotten son in whom I am well pleased. Put your life in his hands. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the Messiah. He's the one for all your hopes and dreams to be set on because he's the only one that can fulfill those things. He's your hope. He is your peace. Still to this very day, the Jewish people speak very highly of David. But it should be heartbreaking for us when we hear the Jewish people not follow that through to the one who David was pointing us to. They miss that. They still put their hope in David and the things that he had put forth. But David really is just pointing us to Jesus, the true king, of whom David will bow his knee to on the day that we bow our knee to. He'll be in the same crowd as us, worshiping the true king. My hope and prayer this morning is that you've put your hope in the true king, not in the kings of this world. The kings of this day and age are in some other thing but that your hope is built on Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and his death and in his resurrection. And his obedience to the Father is where your hope lies. That you understand that it's not you that gets you into heaven. It's him that gets you into heaven. That his righteousness must be on your shoulders, not your righteousness. I hope that that's true in your life. I hope that you're looking to the true king, not somewhere else. You know what's difficult about types? Sometimes we get lost in them. And our hope starts to get in those, like I said with David. When it should be in what that is pointing to, Jesus. So I hope you've trusted in him as your savior. If you have, I hope you're worshiping him as king, as king of your life. As ruler of your life, I hope you submit yourself to him daily and trust in him and follow him. Let's bow together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news that we have a king. We are not kingless, but our king is alive and well, sitting at the right hand, your right hand. And the Bible tells us so much about this king that he intercedes for us daily, that he is our mediator who speaks on our behalf to you, that he's took our place and bore our sin, our shame, and our guilt on him because he was the only one who could do that. So God, as Christians this morning, we praise you for that. I thank you for King David and being able to read about him and Thank you for the book of Samuel. But God, I know it doesn't end there. It's pointing us to Jesus. And God, we cannot miss that. So God, I pray that you would work in our lives as believers to follow our king, to love him well, to serve him, to understand that as we live on this earth, 
that we are ambassadors for him here, for that kingdom, that we would be faithful to that call day in and day out. But God, that we would live in that grace that you have provided and have a joy and a hope that's everlasting. But God, I'd be remiss if I didn't pray for those here this morning who Jesus is not their king. Something else sits on that throne. Whatever it may be, could be a person, could be an ideology, could be some philosophy, could be money or fame or whatever. God, I pray that you would tear down that king for them, that you would help them to see who you are and what you have done for them through Christ and that they would submit to you in everything. And God, that they would understand that joy and hope and peace that we've been talking about that they can have it forever. God, we love you this morning. As we sing this last song, I pray that we would sing it in a way that is worthy of our King, the one who reigns forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.